This is an ABC podcast. Pods. Here I am, sitting in uh, Studio 243 in, at the ABC in Gadigal Country, about to present yet another Late Night Live. And breaking news, Ian Dunt has been bodily abducted by aliens, but we'll think of something. Also on the program, Sri Lanka, behind the headlines. Sri Lanka's been having a terrible time economically, and uh, we want to check out the state of play at the moment. And then a fascinating story about uh, a 600-year-old Buddha found on a West Australian beach and what it might tell us about the history of China and Australia. I suddenly have to complain, make a complaint about... My producers, they're all geniuses, they're all brilliant beyond belief, but we miss the Ides of March this year. It's now the, what is it, the 28th of March. We miss the Ides entirely, and it's the best time of the year to, you know, to assassinate Julius Caesar, but I suppose you can't win them all. Now, Ian Dunt, what are we going to do? Well, ready to step into his uh, capacious shoes is Naomi Smith. Naomi is, of course, a chief executive of Best for Britain, a regular guest on the Oh God, What Now podcast alongside uh, Ian Dunt. And talking about stepping into shoes, uh, we're going to look at Scotland, where the SNP has elected a new leader to fill the big ones of Nicola Sturgeon. Naomi, welcome to the program. Introduce us to the Scottish National Party's new boss. Well, good evening, Philip. And yes, his name is Hamza Youssef. So he's a Glaswegian, born to first-generation immigrant family. And he's been a member of the Scottish Parliament, so an MSP, uh, for over a decade now. I think he was first elected back in 2011. He got a ministerial position a year later in 2012. He's held the International Aid Brief, the Justice Brief, Transport Brief, and then most recently he was Health Minister for Scotland during the pandemic. He's very much seen as a continuity Nicola Sturgeon candidate. Uh, He even joked during his leadership race that he'd have her on speed dial if he won. And in accepting the, the, the position yesterday in his acceptance speech, he said Scotland is a proud European nation and we want to return to the EU. And of course, Scotland voted 62% in favour of staying in the EU, uh, 10% more than the UK as a whole. So that coming through very strongly uh, in him uh, asserting himself as the new leader. And no, the only, I understand he was the only candidate. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, but he's the only candidate who pledged to continue to fight for, uh, well, progressive policies regarding transgender people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason surrounding Nicola Sturgeon's uh, surprise resignation um, have been poured over different theories about what drove that decision, raising, ranging from like internal party strife, um, of which the transgender issue uh, had caused no uh, insignificant impact, through to worries about stagnant support for Scotland's independence. Um, and of course, in her resignation announcement, she uh, echoed Jacinda Ardern's uh, resignation speech that the toll of the last eight years had uh, really become too much in the top job for her to continue. But yes, uh, these these internal um, debates exposed some pretty deep fissures within uh, the SNP. Um, most people 
people in the UK assume that the SNP is a broadly progressive party. But the, the other main challenger uh, to Hamza for the top job was Kate Forbes. And she um, shocked people quite early on in the campaign by talking about her quite conservative Christian beliefs, saying she wouldn't even have voted for equal marriage. Heavens above, no. We, we've just time, had... Let a, alone chance stuff. We've just had a fairly long period with a, uh, a Pentecostal prime minister and locally in New South Wales an Opus Dei Premier. So, uh, you know, my heart goes out to you. She was actually <laughs> opposed to same-sex marriage? Yes, she said that if she'd been an elected official at the time of the vote that equal marriage was introduced, she wouldn't have voted in favour of it. Wow. So that that's quite shocking. She's she's young, you know. She's she's sort of early thirties. So um, it, it's it's unusual for somebody uh, who ticks many of the other demographic groups that would generally be supportive of LGBT plus rights uh, to take such a different stance on it. I think though diversity is something worth mentioning when we look at what's going on in the UK and then our our, our nearest neighbour in Ireland. We've now got um, a, a Hindu. Asian Prime Minister of the UK and Rishi Sunak. We've got a Muslim Asian First Minister in Scotland. The Mayor of London is um, an ethnically Muslim uh, Im- uh, first-generation uh, immigrant, uh, Sadiq Khan. And the Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, is also of Indian descent. And our Home Secretary and Foreign Secretary are both from minority ethnic groups as well. So the UK is, you know, whether or not you agree with all of their shades of politics, now that many of the offices of state hold by a very, very diverse group of people, and given that almost 10% of the UK is made up of people of Asian descent, the, the largest ethnic minority group here, it, it is quite remarkable and, and probably something many of us didn't see coming a decade ago. It's a shame that uh, you're treating uh, prospective refugees or asylum seekers as badly as we are. Look, let's hear a bit of uh, Yusuf speaking after his leadership victory. It is hard for me to find the words to describe just how honoured I am to be entrusted by our membership of the SNP to be the party's next leader and to be on the cusp of being our country's next First Minister. We should all take pride in the fact that today we have sent a clear message that your colour of skin or indeed your faith is not a barrier to leading the country that we all call home. From the Punjab to our parliament, this is a journey over generations that reminds us we should be celebrating and always celebrate the migrants who contribute so much to our country. Isn't it interesting that his late grandfather comes to Scotland from a small town in Pakistan in 1962 with barely a word of English and here's his uh, grandson sounding remarkably Scotch. Indeed. <laughs> yes, no, it's, it's, it's a wonderful testament to um, the diversity that, that you can now have in politics, which has, you know, as I say, over the last decade, just been transformative. Um, of course, most of our parliaments in the UK are still heavily dominated by white middle-class men, but there is now hope that that's changing and there are some excellent role models for the younger generation who hopefully will also throw their hat in the ring and continue this streak of diversity in our body politic. Now, he's determined to get Scotland a second referendum on independence. An uphill battle? Uh, I think so. So back in 2014, um, Scotland had a referendum on leaving the union um, and uh, unionists won by 55 to 44%. Yusuf has reasserted, obviously, his commitment to independence because he heads up the Scottish National Party. Um, but actually, even with the disaster of Brexit and 13 years of Conservative government from Westminster, the need hasn't really moved in Scotland in favour of independence. Um, it was 39% pro-independence, 47% in favour of the union in a poll for Sky News just a couple of weeks ago. So he's definitely got a sterner challenge uh, on his hands than Sturgeon had at the last election. Um, and that's no, in no small part because Labour are now slightly back in ascendancy north of the border in Scotland in a way they very much weren't at the last general election, pretty capable of peeling away some SNP votes. And of course, one of the things 
theories behind Sturgeon's departure was that her call to make the next general election a de facto second referendum on independence just hadn't galvanised the support that she'd hoped it would. We're talking to Naomi Smith. I guess there must be independence fatigue as well. Maybe, and I think after you know several years of pandemic the impact of brexit which people are feeling very very keenly here in the uk i hasten to add more and more reports coming out showing the economic damage uh, you know the, the extra cost that we're facing on food inflation more so than other parts of the world as a result i think means that people are beginning to reassess whether or not going it alone, even if it might mean you get back into the EU at some point, is worth the economic pain that will come with it. Let's let's head south. I mentioned uh, your very tough uh, new immigration policies, which uh, are a carbon co- a carbon mine, copy. To add. <laughs> yeah, well, a carbon copy of Australia's. What's the fallout been since uh, the government introduced stop the boats? Oh, well, so the government introduced um, something that they called the illegal migration bill, but to normal people, it's the anti-asylum bill. Um, And Sunak has been selling this as uh, key to delivering on one of his five pledges. And one of those pledges is to stop the small boat crossings that are coming across the English Channel from France. And uh, he says that the bill um, would permit the mass detention and deportation of people arriving in the UK via irregular means. Now, of course, channel crossings are the inevitable result of a government that has deliberately and systematically closed off those safe legal established routes to claiming asylum in the UK. So except for Ukrainians fleeing the current conflict there, it is almost impossible for people facing real danger anywhere else in the world to reach the UK in a way that would be deemed acceptable to this government. And it demonstrated absolutely brilliantly um, by the Home Secretary at a select committee last year when she was asked the simple question of how someone could actually claim asylum to the UK and she, as Home Secretary, could not answer the question. So I think many of those making the crossings, of course, former British allies, people who were abandoned in Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul, and and the government is just using this bill as a smoke stream to distract from their abject failure to reduce the backlog of asylum claimants. We have currently close to 200,000, I think it's over, well over 160,000 um, currently claiming asylum. They're just being confined in hotels at great taxpayer expense rather than being able to build new lives here, find jobs, pay tax, etc. So the bill is currently getting its second reading in the House of Commons. There's concerns from within the conservative benches, both from the more extreme right, who, who want it to go even further and take the UK out of the European Convention on Human Rights. And then those on the the slightly softer wing of the party saying, for God's sake, Prime Minister, can you please exclude children from this bill? But no, no, at the moment they're holding firm. The UN aren't at all pleased, but we ignored them and I guess... uh... I guess Downing Street can do that as well. Now, let's talk Boris, because uh, last week he faced a grilling from the Privileges Committee over whether he misled the House of Commons about his uh, infamous COVID lockdown parties. Naomi Smith, what happened? (laughs) So all of this, as you say, relates back to the Partygate scandal, which was the key thing that brought Johnson down, the rule-breaking which struck such a chord with everyone who made sacrifices, and in many cases, myself included, was unable to be with loved ones when they passed. We abided by the rules, he didn't. So the short summary is that lying to Parliament in the UK is a very, very, very big no-no, and if you're caught doing it intentionally, you can be suspended. And most people understandably believe that Johnson did indeed lie to Parliament when he said he was unaware of any parties in Downing Street, unaware of of parties he was photographed at, I hasten to add. So there's plenty of evidence to show him being ambushed by cake, um, as he put it, um, at somebody's leaving due. So a parliamentary inquiry was set up to establish whether he did knowingly lie to Parliament or not. Um, If they think he did, they can recommend a suspension. And if they recommend a suspension that is longer than 10 days, 
and Parliament approves it, he could face something that's called a recall petition, which basically means his constituents and his constituency of Uxbridge and South Rysip could call a by-election. And he'd be very unlikely to hold that seat if he faced a, a by-election. I, I think you're being very cruel to Boris. So let's listen to a bit of him in the committee hearing. Roll tape. Are you saying you thought these gatherings were so critical to the function of government that it was permissible to hold them even if they couldn't be socially distanced? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, I thought that it was essential to thank staff for their work. Uh, I think that it, 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 even though the, the pictures seem to show uh, festive events, I think that our efforts, even in those pictures, are being made to, uh, to do social distancing. and. What I saw, what I had in my head when I was talking to the House of Commons was a memory, a strong memory of uh, people over a long period doing uh, everything they could to stop the spread of disease within the building. Now, finally, Sunak did have a victory recently, as we discussed on the programme, on that Brexit border deal, Naomi, uh, with Northern Ireland. It had a big win in the House, didn't it? It did, um, and it's few and far between that I will praise uh, this Conservative government. However, on this occasion, I do say well done to Sunak. He called it the Windsor framework. So this was um, a deal that he struck with Ursula von der Leyen of the EU Commission to basically uh, find ways of smoothing the process of transferring goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. The, the Northern Irish Protocol, um, as many of your listeners will have heard it described. Now, he took that new deal, that new breakthrough to a vote in the Commons, and it passed with five 515 votes for and just 29 against. In the run-up to it, there was all sorts of talks of rebellion from the hard Brexiteers of his party that he'd have to rely on Keir Starmer's opposition votes to get it through. In the end, he didn't, and he managed to get it through without the need for those opposition votes to pass it. And I think it makes the Brexit fanatics, who were so influential throughout the Brexit uh, disaster days, um, could muster just 20 votes among their Tory MPs, sends a pretty clear signal that their influence is on the wane. And I, I do hope that that is true. And let the record show that PMs Johnson, former PMs Johnson and Truss, both voted against the plan. Naomi, thanks for Thank that. You. Naomi Smith, Chief Exec with Best for Britain, and you can hear her regularly on the God What Now political podcast coming up behind the headlines in the embattled nation of Sri Lanka. <laughs> It is a year since uh, Sri Lanka's economy collapsed. A year of a once prosperous nation, knock for six and trying to find its feet. Tourists are slowly returning, but there's malnutrition and loss of work. Now, last week, the IMF deal was announced, but it's uh, questionable how much impact that will have on people's lives. I welcome to the program... Dilokshan Francis, a head of research and evaluation at the Save the Children, Sri Lanka, and Benjamin Parkin, who's the Financial Times South Asia correspondent. Dilokshan, I want to start with Benjamin, if you don't mind, because sometimes, well, a semi-outsider's view is quite telling. Ben, you're based in New Delhi but you make frequent trips to Colombo, including last week. What does the visitor see now? Do you see a country in crisis? Hi, Philip. Thanks for having me on. I think compared to a year ago or, or six months ago, you know, when you arrived in Sri Lanka, say in Colombo, I mean, it felt in many ways like a ghost town. Uh, the airport was practically empty, streets were empty, people couldn't get fuel to leave the house. There were, you know, the, the main sign of life were queues, people waiting up to get cooking gas. Compared to that, it looks like um, 
you know, it looks like a, a, the, the tourists are paradise. It looks like, um, in, in many ways, superficially, things have bounced back. Uh, shops are, are full, streets are busy again. Um, you see tourists coming in and out of uh, malls and hotels, but that really masks the um, much less visible and lingering effects of the crisis, the hunger, the um, joblessness you mentioned, the the massive hit to the standard of living that people have taken. So it's easy to to think that uh, the worst is over. In many ways, the worst is is only beginning. Now, so on the surface, a sense of normality, but beneath the surface, I understand you talk to people who want to leave the country. Yes, uh, quite a few, actually. You know, we spoke to um, some siblings, for example, Sajitra and uh, Jana Lakshan, both around 30 years old. One of them didn't have a job and was uh, all set to leave to the UAE. Another one did. But inflation was so high that, you know, his uh, Janalakshan, his uh, salary had become effectively meaningless. And this was a pretty widely held sentiment among the people we've spoken to that they just don't see opportunity for the, the short term and indeed medium and long term. Benjamin, so it's the second stage of the crisis. Have people's incomes fallen massively? Yes, we'll take uh, inflation, for example. I mean, inflation is currently running at about uh, 50% year over year. And it uh, was even higher um, a few months ago at like 70%. So people's purchasing power has dropped massively. Um, So, you know, Sri Lanka was, uh, relative to some of its neighbours, say India, uh, Pakistan, other South Asian countries, quite prosperous on a per capita basis. Its per capita GDP was double that of India's before the crisis. And now it's fallen uh, sharply. And people who were enjoying, uh, you know, by those standards, quite uh, a good uh, quality of life have seen a lot of those gains disappear. I understand it had quite a strong social safety net, you know, public services, education, health, social welfare schemes. Yeah, it's, it's all relative, but um, but certainly when you compared it to uh, some of its immediate neighbours, yeah, Sri Lanka had, had invested seriously in uh, education, healthcare, in, um, uh, you know, ensuring that, you know, people were protected from, uh, you know, extreme poverty. Uh, and a lot of that has uh, proved to be really, um, uh, really precarious now. Um, you know, people are really struggling. At the height of the crisis, people were cooking with firewood because they couldn't get fuel. Now, you know, they can get fuel again, but how much food can they afford? Can they afford anything other than the absolute basics? Can they eat, uh, you know, more than one or two meals a day? I mean, that's for for uh, deluxe to to speak about more. But um, it's it's been a real sort of cratering of the, the system that had been created. I'm talking to Benjamin Parkin, who's the uh, Financial Times South Asia correspondent. In the past, you would have seen a lot of uh, construction work going on. Is that resuming? Well, it's slowly, some of it may be, but, um, uh, you know, pretty much uh, there may be some appetite to restart deals, but I didn't see any evidence of massive uh, rebuilding. I think that'll take time. Uh, that'll need a lot more money. You know, one of the people I spoke to, Jana Lakshan, who I already mentioned, actually worked for a state construction company. And one of the problems he cited was that a lot of the projects, you know, bridges, for example, had just ground to a halt. Deluxion Francis, thanks for your patience. Your organisation, Save the Children, has done a, a couple of household surveys. What were the most, well, the most startling findings when it comes to food? Yes, uh, thank you. So what we have done in uh, following the crisis, uh, Save the Children uh, realised that the complex uh, nature of the crisis that that, uh, started to evolve and uh, we felt there might be more dimensions of uh, how, in particular, the household uh, being impacted by the crisis. So we done the first phase of the assessment in June 2022 and followed by uh, the second phase of the assessment we carried out in uh, uh, December 2022. So what we have observed was even though there are uh, 
as the previous speaker mentioned, you know, there were things uh, we could see improved uh, in terms of uh, mobility and access to certain uh, essential items. But however, uh, the depleted capacity of household, because even though some of the household managed to increase income, but the expenses uh, started doubled. So their household average income is never adequate. So what the household have done, uh, they forced to send more members from their household to work. So from our survey, we have found in 36%, almost one in three household, where the spouses need to go to earn additionally on, on top of other members. So that leaves in, in particularly children at most at risk. Uh, also, uh, more people started to migrate. If uh, based on the statistics that we have derived from the immigration, more women tend to find better earning jobs in the Middle Eastern countries. And uh, that also leaves uh, children at risk uh, because the primary caregiving uh, lapses that cause. And uh, in terms of uh, food security, our survey has found nearly 36% of the household were not able to provide adequate nutritious food for their children. And uh, nearly 50%, one in two households, were not able to spend on education because if we take the average spending of household, uh, mainly they focus on food, education, and medicine. Those are the traditional group where the focus on spending. So where one in two were not able to spend on education, Purely because in, in terms of average household expenditure required for education for one child has almost tripled when compared to two years ago. So based on the earning that they have, they can't prioritize children's education where they have to focus on food security of children, uh, of the families. In 2017, there was surplus rice production. Now, every single food, including rice, has to be imported. All of Now, all of this makes schooling so much more important. But there's a new barrier there too, isn't there? The entry cost. Exactly. So, uh, as you rightly mentioned, we were surplus producers of rice. And almost every single item, now we have to... Uh, now we have to import. So in, in particular, these education materials, that's the reason for why we used to have this high cost, uh, because all these products when got uh, imported because of our inflated dollar, all the prices have been increased. And uh, this even forced children, say if there are two children, our findings have revealed around 4 to 5% where the children have to stop one child's education, uh, especially they can't afford the new enrollment. So they have to support the other uh, other child's based on how they choose their priority education. I understand that school was somewhere where children could be fed. Correct. So Save the Children, together with the funding of uh, uh, USDA, uh, US funding, uh, were engaged in providing school meal program uh, around 880 schools that covers around 120,000 children. So uh, it's a program complements with the uh, government uh, school meal program where it, through our uh, donors' gracious support, we provide uh, salmon, uh, dal, and uh, co coconut that uh, complements the the staple food of rice and other that was supported by the government funds. So it's a holistic meal that we provide. But the main objective of this school meal program is to engage children to study. Their uh, active engagement in the education uh, was the main uh, focus. Uh, if you look at how households were struggling to provide nutritious food, and based on our survey finding, Sending children to school to get this nutritious food is always the best option for the families. Back to you, Benjamin Parkin. This all sounds appalling. What difference might the IMF loan make? Well, in the immediate term, it could make some difference, but ultimately 
um, it's a very long-term program aimed at uh, long-term growth and gains. So the the total value of the program is $3 billion spread over four years. Now, Sri Lanka has received uh, around $330 million as of last week. So for a country that needs to import fuel, food, medicine, that's not actually very much money at the end of the day. What it does is it sends a potential kind of uh, vote of confidence to uh, a message to other investors, lenders, countries that this is, uh, you know, this is a, an economy that's slowly recovering. And so, you know, we may see more deals, uh, more loans and so on. However, ultimately, it's a very long term program that, you know, the government now has to embark on a multi-year reform program, which are going to be painful and in the short term could make things worse for, for certain uh, demographics. To put that $3 billion into perspective, Australia has uh, just signed up for 300 odd billion for submarines. So $3 billion over four years is a pittance. But... Uh, and, of course, the IMF usually requires the recipient country to raise taxes and cut spending. Yes, and the government of uh, President Rano Wickremesinghe has already done that, raised taxes quite sharply um, uh, in a number of areas and cut, you know, for example, subsidies on fuel and so on. Now, uh, the reality is Sri Lanka's tax base was very, very low and it was an unsustainable situation and it was one that had been created not to benefit um, ordinary Sri Lankans, but, you know, to benefit sort of uh, powerful, politically connected demographics of businesses and so on. So these are changes that most people I speak to agree were needed, um, but it's unclear how much there is to protect those who will be hard hit in the interim if you're uh, the, the value of your salary is already dissipating because of inflation and you have to pay more tax. Where does that leave you? Benjamin, we talked about the uh, the pending IMF loan on the program a year ago. Why did it take so long? So, yes, the, the, uh, sh- the former Sri Lankan president uh, first approached the IMF about a year ago. They had agreed a what's called a staff-level sort of preliminary agreement by September, but then it took around six months to actually get the funds and finalize the deal. The reason is that because when the IMF lends to a bankrupt country, they require that country, in this case Sri Lanka, to go to its other lenders and agree some kind of debt relief deal first. So in other words, they need to convince the people who have lent them money to you know, give them some kind of break on what they're supposed to repay. Now, in this case, that involved India, that involved Japan, and crucially, that involved China, which, uh, and this is where you know Sri Lanka's case becomes of real importance to the, the rest of the world, and it's being very closely watched. China has become a huge lender to low and middle income countries over the past couple of years. And so now when we're seeing other countries struggle with debt distress because of the slowing global economy, inflation and so on, um, more and more countries are going to be going to China and asking them for help. Um, So in this case, China was reluctant to agree to some kind of uh, restructuring deal. Eventually it did, which paved the way for... um, the IMF to disperse the money, but it's, that that process as well is not over. Now they have to actually finalise an agreement, so it, it, it could yet drag out. The program could yet be held up. Deluxe, we're running out of time, but we should also remember there have been so many things for the Sri Lankans to struggle with. There's, well, there was the tsunami in two thousand and four, two thousand and six, the peak of the civil conflict and, of course, natural disasters, floods and droughts. Exactly. So we used to consider that uh, if, if you take the average uh, economically disadvantaged household, uh, they often live in these disaster-prone locations because they can't afford to, uh, you know, the land become one of their biggest issues. So if you take the, the history of the disasters, since tsunami, uh, these particular vulnerable households never had the time to recover because there were compounding shocks of man-made and natural hazards that never provided them time 
to to recover or stabilize their ec economic uh, uh, conditions. And what we had was uh, the global level impact. Uh, global level if, if uh, war in uh, uh, Ukraine that impacts on the tourism because uh, normally Sri Lanka has the higher volume of tourism from from those part of the world and also the Sri Lankan tea is is mainly purchased by those uh, uh, those uh, part of the world as well so that has a very severe impact on our uh, country's economy troubles upon troubles upon troubles there's so much more to tell, but unfortunately we're out of time and I thank you both for your contribution. Delukshan Francis, Head of Research and Evaluation at Save the Children, Sri Lanka. And thank you, Benjamin Parkin, Financial Times South Asia correspondent. Coming up, how on earth did a very old Chinese artefact wind up on a West Australian beach? <laughs> Back in 2018, beloved listeners, a, a couple of those uh, metal detectorists in remote WA uncovered a mysterious treasure in the sands of Shark Bay. Buried face down was a smiling bronze figurine of the Buddha weighing about a kilo. Now, the discovery sent uh, amateur historians into a frenzy, fueling speculation that ancient treasure ships from the Ming Dynasty may have landed on West Australia's beaches centuries before the Dutch or the Brits. And just this month, the Buddha has finally been verified as a genuine artefact, perhaps five or six hundred years old. So how did this little, little bloke wind up on the wild west coast? And do we need to rewrite the history of Chinese people in Australia? Dr Yu Tao has a CV which I find quite awe-inspiring, but these days, let's simplify it to the fact that he's a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the University of Western Australia. So let's start with the little bronze Buddha found near Shark Bay. One of the problems with wireless, Doctor, is it's uh, not particularly visual. Can you describe what it looks like? So judging from what we see uh, in the media, the Buddha is just over 20 centimetres and it's, um, it was made in bronze. Uh, it's a child Buddha, so it's not an adult Buddha. And the Buddha was smiling with one hand up. Um, and judging from the Buddha's appearance, it's probably not very new. Um, and it's kind of uh, typical that people probably use that in their uh, ceremonies. Um, and then they would pour sometimes pour teas over the Buddha to make that very clean uh, and uh, purify it. Um, so that looks like a Buddha that uh, people in the Ming Dynasty would have used for religious purpose. It's recently been confirmed in, of all places, the BBC's Antiques uh, Roadshow as completely authentic. It is authentic, uh, Philip, but... Uh, the, the fact that the Buddha was probably made in the Ming Dynasty doesn't necessarily mean that it arrived in Australia during the Ming Dynasty. So okay. it could we'll, tease that, we'll tease that out shortly, but just to give sure. the, the listener a sense of the, of the importance of the discovery, the Asian art expert on Antiques Roadshow described it as a world treasure. So, uh, you know, we're talking a piece of significance. So there's... Is there any possibility that the Buddha arrived in WA on one of the Ming Dynasty treasure ships way back in the 1400s? I'm afraid it's very unlikely. And the reason for that is there is no well-accepted um, archaeological evidence uh, on you know, any of the Ming fleets. Um, they arrived in WA or Australia. However, uh, we know that during the Ming Dynasty, the emperor... Uh, especially in the early parts of the Ming Dynasty, the empire actually sent out 
uh, large fleets many times, seven times, led by an admiral called Chen Ho, and his fleet. He was wa- he was one of the eunuch admirals, was he not? Yes, indeed, he was a eunuch, and that's why he was very trusted by the emperor to send out these uh, fleets. And the fleets actually went uh, as far as today's Somalia land. Um, so it would have the engineering strength, I like to think, to go through the um, challenging seas. Um, but Australian, let's not forget, at that time, people in China probably wouldn't or didn't know there is a southern land. So there might not be a purpose for them to sell uh, direct down south. I, I uh, want to give the listener a sense of the size of the these armadas and indeed the individual ships. One voyage typically featured over 300 vessels, including treasure ships, 400 feet long. And there was a, a legion of supply ships, water tankers, warships with cannons. And the total personnel on the fleet numbered over 28,000. This is awe-inspiring, isn't it? Indeed. I mean, if we compare that with uh, the European uh, exploration ships or fleets slightly later, a few decades later, uh, this is enormous because the European fleets normally just consist of you know, three to five ships, and they're much smaller than... Well, Columbus's flagship, the St. Maria, was only a dinghy by comparison, but it was a mere 85 feet in length. Indeed. So their engineering strength was enormous. Where were the ships built? So the ships, most of them were built in uh, today's Nanjing, uh, which is a city uh, down the Yangtze River in eastern China not too far away from Shanghai. Now, it's important to note that unlike the Europeans, the Chinese armada never sought to establish colonial rule. Yeah, that wasn't their intention, at least. The intention was more to connect with the Southeast Asian and, and you know, countries far away and to basically um, make people afar knowing the power of China and then build up this uh, diplomatic and trading relations rather than to directly occupy lands. And uh, after this period of peaceful diplomacy, Chinese China's maritime supremacy vanishes in the 1430s. Why is that? Because there were the change of um, empires and there was not change of government during that time, of course, but with a new empire uh, went into power, they would have uh, different policies. And the emperors after the one who initially sent Chen Ho out uh, wasn't so keen to explore. And also because, uh, you know, nowadays we think Chen Ho's um, voyages are magnificent, but they also cost lots of money. So for an empire, especially a new empire, doesn't see too much the benefits of these trading relationships. Uh, they just curtailed the whole program. Okay, let's. we're looking at this Buddha, but it reminds us that the religious makeup of China in the Ming Dynasty was a bit complex, wasn't it? There were other teachings too. Indeed. And Chen Ho himself is an interesting example because nowadays if we go to Southeast Asia, to Indonesia, for example, Chen Ho is uh, primarily remembered as a Muslim. Um, However, in China, he was also uh, remembered as a Buddhist follower and he did have a Buddhist name. Uh, And also there were other religious and mostly the popular religious, some of them eventually recognized as Taoism. They also think that Chen Ho was a follower of their teaching because Chen Ho did build lots of temples that not necessarily worship Buddha uh, or or, or they're not mosques either. So they worship uh, this female figure, a goddess of the sea. So some people also consider Chen Ho as a Taoist. Now, we can fairly confidently and perhaps sadly rule out the theory that the Ming Dynasty fleet reached Australia, which suggests that this little Buddha was dropped or buried much more recently. I think we know how long it was buried before its discovery, don't we? Indeed. I mean, according to... um, an expert from the Western Australian Museum, um, the dirt 
um, examination result shows that the Buddha is more likely to have been buried there for about 100 to 150 years. So the Buddha may have been left by a Chinese family who migrated to WA at some point in the 1800s. I think that was more likely than the uh, Chen Ho's treasure boat theory. Well, that takes us to the history of Chinese people in Western Australia. And we can trace the records because there's been a Chinese presence on the West Coast since the 1800s, hasn't there? Yes. In fact, um, throughout the archive and archival research, we know exactly who was the first documented Chinese Australian. And his name is Moon Chao. He arrived in Western Australia, uh, and more precisely, today's uh, Perth metropolitan region, uh, among, um, or around 1830. He eventually became a skilled carpenter, but initially he was uh, someone who, who worked uh, on the boat, uh, a crew member. It wasn't actually his plan to came to Australia and then eventually become the first documented Chinese Western Australian. Uh, he was on boat. Uh, he was on board this boat called Emily Taylor, which at that time sailed from uh, Bombay or today's Mong Mai in Indian. And then they came to um, the newly established Swan River colony, uh, which eventually became today's Perth. Uh, and then unfortunately, the boat sinked outside. Uh, Cookburn Sand, which is in the south of today's Perth. And he was stranded, in a way, in Western Australia and couldn't find a boat to either go back to India or go to other places. So he had to, in a way, settle down. Uh, and then he put uh, his skillful carpenter capacity into use in the end. So he marries, has kids, and lived in Fremantle until his death. Many more Chinese arrived from the 1870s. Indeed. Um, so some of them came here as intended labour, so they were hired to do some particular things, um, including in, in the pearling industry. Uh, and others were more like the free migrants. They came here, opened up shops. Um, some of them do tailor, tailoring jobs and others uh, set up market gardens. And some became very successful, didn't they? Uh, one local, Ah Wee, owned two pearling boats, pearling gear, two dinghies, two iron houses and livestock worth a total of, well, heavens above, 117 pounds. Indeed, some of them were very successful, um, but many of them also lived a tra tragic life. There were racial discriminations. For example, even the very rich um, Chinese Western Australians, eventually they find it very difficult to continue their operations, uh, especially in the pearl industry, um, because the European settlers pressured the colonial authority eventually to uh, eliminate their rights of compete in the industry. And also, um, even though Throughout Australia, the Chinese were known for their early involvement in the mining industry, the gold mines. But in Western Australia, our research shows that there was little, very few Chinese in the gold mines, uh, especially in Kagoolie, that area, because uh, they were excluded from getting in uh, through state legislations. You tell the story of uh, not simple bigotry but absolute violence uh, with one case of, of a Chinese worker being murdered by his employer who was never charged and uh, you say there were many similar cases. Tell me about the Canton settlement in Shark Bay. It, I understand it was violently closed by the Europeans. Well, the Canton uh, settlement, or I mean, that settlement was called the Canton probably because uh, lots of people speak Cantonese there. And that was a camp for the Chinese uh, pillars at, 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 around Shark Bay area in about 1870s. Um, and then it lasts for, you know, about a decade time. And some of the um, residents uh, were very successful in the business. Uh, and eventually, the European settlers 
um, pressured uh, or they pushed the the colonial authority to pass the legislation, and especially there was a legislation on uh, the Shark Bay Purling and Fishing Act uh, around eighteen eighty six, and after that. Because there was a state legislation banning Chinese and the so-called Malays um, from getting involved into this very profitable business. And And to enter, of course, the white Australia policy and the Chinese population gradually declines in WA. Indeed, because after 1901, because of the Western Australian policy, in fact, it's very difficult for China-born people to migrate into Australia afterwards. The two men who found the Buddha in the sand uh, say they've spent a lot of money researching its origins. They intend to sell it at auction and use the funds to support more archaeological work at Shark Bay. What do you think uh, should happen to this precious artefact? Well, I think there should be more um, scientific examination on the artifact and we will know more about its backgrounds and if it actually represents or embodies important um, parts of the Australian history, then um, it would be good that if it end up in a museum. Uh, however, uh, I'd like to point out that one reason that we are facing these challenges that, you know, these uh, tr- national treasures that eventually go to auction, uh, that was because the legislative um, loopholes uh, in Australian and in WA, because if you find an object, however treasure or, or precious they are, if they are not in the designated heritage areas, then uh, the state museum uh, or the, the state authority do not necessarily have the ownership of that. And the museum have, you know, budget restraints and they might not necessarily be able to preserve everything um, just funded in WA. Let's talk again about this extraordinary artefact as the story is far from over. Thank you very much, Dr. Yu Tao, Senior Lecturer in Chinese Studies at the University of Western Australia and on our next What's Making News Across Central Asia. Oh, and we turn to a fractured Israel where days of protest have forced the Netanyahu government to delay its expansive legal reforms, if reforms is the appropriate term. Then we travel back in time to World War II to meet five remarkable Australian journalists who joined a British air raid on Berlin. See you then. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.